Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Egg Gotham, and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions, where we interview the top investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, I've got Simon Erickson on the show. Simon is the founder and CEO of Seven Investing, where they empower you to invest in your future. They provide subscribers with the seven investment ideas every month that you need to know. Before this, Simon was also at The Motley Fool for seven years as the lead advisor of Motley Fool Explorer, where they invest each month in the market's most innovative companies. Simon is a forward-looking investor focused on identifying disruptive innovation and finding developing trends before others may even be aware of them. This focus has unlocked some pretty unique experiences such as riding in the beta version of Waymo's self-driving car and taking a DNA test to explain how he'd react to prescription drugs. In this interview, we discuss the three most exciting and disruptive themes for the next decade, including personalised medicine, why an economic moat is so important, and when it's right to sell a stock. Enjoy. Hi, Simon. Great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Oh, fantastic, Ed. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. No worries. And where where are you um, calling from today? From Houston, Texas, here in the United States. The other side of the pond for you. Yeah, wow. And uh, how's the weather like this week? Does it get cold down there or do you not see the seasons as much? Uh, Well, Houston has kind of two seasons. It's basically hot all year and then all of a sudden it gets cold and everybody freaks out. We are still in the warm here in November, believe it or not. We're not even wearing jackets outside, but we know that winter is coming. Okay, okay. When does winter actually hit then? More sort of January time? I think so. I think so. That's when nobody goes outside anymore. Yeah, okay, got you. So it drops significantly in temperature by that point. It, it does. And if it snows, Ed, then the entire city shuts down and nobody knows what to do around here. It's really <laughs> quite hilarious. <laughs> Fair enough. But that, is that over with quite quickly? I don't know how, is the winter sort of short and sharp? It is, you know, it's kind of a sharp winter. And then, you know, as soon as it starts getting a little warmer in, you know, March or so, and then we, we go full into summer. And of course, anyone who knows uh, living in Texas, summer is dreadful down here. It's sweating and, and, and hot and miserable for most people. <laughs> but we do enjoy the seasons when they last. A couple of weeks, we get a fall. A couple of weeks, we get a spring. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> so I thought I don't normally start the uh, interview this way, but you've obviously talked to analyze a lot of investors over the years. So I thought a nice place to start was just to cover who your favorite investor of all time is and and why that is. Yeah, I love this question because I think probably the most popular response you get to it is Warren Buffett. Uh, But mine is a little bit different than most. My favorite investor is actually Clayton Christensen. Uh, And he was actually an academic, right? He was a a professor of strategy at Harvard Business School. And he wrote just a life-changing book for me that was called The Innovator's Dilemma. And what that did was kind of introduce the whole concept of disruptive innovation and why it is that companies that are larger and get bigger and bigger and have more and more people and more and more resources and get higher and higher margins, why isn't it that those companies just go on and just take over the entire world, right? Why are there not just 10 really uber large companies that just dominate everything? And the theory of disruptive innovation predicts that there will be newcomers to markets that can topple those existing incumbent players. Uh, After reading that and then reading it again several more times and chatting even personally a couple of years ago with Clay Christensen, it kind of changed my entire thoughts about investing. We we always have gone for competitive molts. We always like sustainable advantages, but it also kind of looks for where the chinks in the armor of those big companies, that smaller companies, $3 billion market cap companies, $5 billion market cap companies. We shouldn't dismiss those for being smaller players. Sometimes they have some huge advantages. And that has really, really influenced my entire investing style as a growth style investor. And what exactly, for those who haven't read the book, um, why do they have an advantage over the, the big incumbents typically? There are five principles of how you can spot disruptive innovation, but kind of to roll them all into a nutshell, when you are a large company, you are kind of driven by continuing to serve the customer base and the products that you're already creating. It's really hard to turn the ship around. 
You want to keep making, you know, faster processors if you're Intel. You want to make, you know, better and better phones if you're if you're Apple. You've kind of got these sustaining innovations that keep getting a little bit better every cycle, right? Every time you release a, a new product, um, it becomes a little bit better than it was before. But then there are pockets of opportunity that when you're doing that, you're missing uh, the chance to develop something that's completely different than what you're already focused on. And it's these disruptive innovations that the market doesn't understand at first. The largest customers don't understand because they're already locked in with the way of doing things. Uh, but if you if you make something completely different, you rewrite the rules of the game. It's something that the larger players cannot uh, necessarily you know pivot to address because they're already locked in with their customers and their products and the margins that are that are providing you know the, the tens of thousands of employees that they have. So it's a fascinating investing concept. It's something that you know kind of goes back to to Intel back in the '90s. You know, Andy Grove was one of the first to adopt um, this framework of thinking and say you've always got to be almost paranoid of your competitors because they're looking at a lot of the things that you necessarily are not. And so, how has that affected your sort of investment style? What have you taken from that and implemented yourself? Well, I think that generally, as an investor in the public markets. There are really large companies that have got a huge institutional following. And, and what I mean by that, Ed, is you, if, you've, if you've got an Apple, if you've got an Amazon, if you've got a Microsoft, those are great companies. I'm not discounting that at all. But they've also got you know, 50, 100, maybe more than 100 analysts that are doing discounted cash flow analyses on them, that are looking at their every move and quarterly earnings, that are really, really kind of putting everything that these companies announce under the microscope. And markets are not necessarily completely efficient. You know, a lot of those companies that I mentioned are already up five or six times, even in the last five years, which shows that there's still opportunities for them. But I also think that there's a huge opportunity for us as individuals to look necessarily where the largest funds that are commanding tens of billions of dollars and are putting every quarterly earnings release under the microscope are not. You know, if we are looking at long-term innovation and we are looking at truly some groundbreaking things that are going on out there and doing our homework and doing some really thorough research, I think we can find things that are not quite as publicized in the media or quite not as scrutinized by institutional investors. And so that's what I look for in my investing. I look for pockets of innovation that I'm really excited about and look for the companies that I think are going to capitalize on those trends. Yeah. So you're you're obviously known as a a forward-looking investor focusing on this, identifying disruptive innovation. Typically, before others is what you you sort of like go for. They might not people other people might not even be aware of it. So, is there a sort of approach to that? How do you go about finding companies or even themes of disruptive innovation before others um, have completely become aware of it, or the majority are, are unaware of it? If possible, um, you go able to go through some examples as well. I mean, my entire approach has always been to talk to people who are a lot smarter than I am. Yeah, <laughs> it's the technical conferences that I went to. If you can believe this, Ed, except for December, you know, on Christmas time, and except for when my daughter was born, I went to a technical conference every single month for four years. Wow. It just, you know, in listening to PhDs and postdocs on the stage talking about the, the innovations that they're working on, uh, listening to the cloud computing guys in San Francisco talking about what they're really excited about, uh, several people in the bioconference uh, down in San Diego talking about what they're talking about in personal medicine, South by Southwest conference is a favorite. Uh, MIT's conferences are a favorite. I mean, just going and not being afraid to chat with these people and interview them and, and hear what they're really excited about. Because I think a lot of the times it's academic work. You know, it's the work that, that either NASA would work on or DARPA's working on or some institutions working on that that has got corporate sponsorship. That's what eventually makes its way into the public markets, yep. into the into the into the private industries out there. And then if we can find and identify those when no one else is looking at those, that's where you find 10 baggers for your investment portfolio. I got you. And are you looking for themes or companies once they're still private, or are you looking at them just when they go public? Both. Maybe one example of that is buy now, pay later is something that is now really a big headline grabber in the public markets. But this goes back years ago when they were just talking about it in terms of transparency and finance. Max Levchin, the founder and um, CEO of, of Affirm, I remember speaking with him at a financial technology conference up in New York City a couple of years ago when they were a private company. They just said, hey, we want to make this more transparent about the fees and make sure that we can break this $125 billion um, interest industry. I don't even know if you call it an industry, but it's basically sucking money away from people every year in America 
that you're paying late fees and interest fees that you weren't necessarily aware of for, for credit card debt. Mm. And he said, hey, we can fix this problem. We can go out there and change this entire industry. Private company, huge trend, huge developing trend, really smart guy that was onto that. And then, of course, now you look at a firm and its stock price and the public markets, it's been knocking it out of the park. So, I mean, things like that, it could be a publicly traded company already, or it couldn't. Uh, if you if you follow a lot of companies that are still private, but they're eventually going to go public and they're going to get a lot of institutional following. Yeah. So it's almost before you're seeing these huge growth in earnings or sales uh, from public companies where, you know, everyone starts to, because people have got all their sort of like filters and things, uh, screeners to look, find these companies as soon as they sort of pop up. It's almost like you're getting it right from the, from the ground, from the ground floor, uh, from the founders of these companies and these people are working on these disruptive themes and then you're getting it straight from them basically and, and you're buying into it at that stage and that's how you're getting knowledge of, of these things before other people are. Yeah, that's right, Ed. I, I, I like to think of it as kind of the middle ground between a venture capitalist and a, and a company and a competitive moat, right? VCs are just yeah. going out there investing in everything. They want to say, okay, I want everything that's cutting edge. You know, I'm going to put a small seed in the ground and see which ones are going to grow knowing that 90% of their investments aren't going to work out. And then the other side of it, if you're an institutional investor that's dealing with, with people who have millions of dollars of money in your fund, you don't want to get a phone call from them because you don't want to screw up. You want to say, I'm going to go after the sure thing, the Amazons and the Facebooks, excuse me, the Metas, companies formerly known as Facebook, but the ones that you know the largest and most established that you're, that you're not going to be taking a huge risk on because you know that there's going to be a return attached to it. I tend to look for the middle ground where I say, hey, this is innovative. This is really cool. I'm really excited about this. But there's got to also be signs of execution and progress. And that's the real beauty of investing is kind of sniffing those out and finding before everyone else notices. And is it right that you rode in um, the beta version of Waymo's self-driving car? That is true. That is correct. <laughs> and how did you manage to get that opportunity? <laughs> it was a trip to Mountain View. You know, they've got kind of a geofenced location. Uh, around it was, I believe it was Google X at the time, but you know, we set up some meetings with them. We wanted to hear what they were working on. They said, yeah, do you want to go ride in the car? I said, yeah, absolutely I do. And they said, okay, well, you know, put the cameras away, put your smartphone away. We can't get footage of this. But there was a guy in the driver's seat that he had his hands right off of the steering wheel. So that just in case it disengaged, he was there and, you know, it was safe that we they could pick it up. And it was turning corners and everything. It was amazing. It, it was drive. It drives so defensive. This is years ago. Ed. This is way before wow. we started talking about this. But it recognized there was a, a person walking across the sidewalk that was... Um, still not right in front of the car, but it picked it up in the peripheral vision and it stopped and waited for that person to completely walk across in the crosswalk. It just, it was, it was just, it felt totally safe. I didn't feel in danger at all, except for maybe the wow. first 10 seconds when I was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. So, I, I mean, it's not legal in the States yet, is it? You're not allowed to have autonomous driving yet. There are there are locations. It's very regional. You know, Pittsburgh has been very open to it. Uh, parts of Phoenix have been open to it. Mountain View has been open to it. But in terms of like uh, in the entire country, we, it hasn't been adopted yet. It's going to be growing in pockets. Uh, when do you see that sort of becoming a reality? I mean, that's the big question, right? If you're where where are we in terms of autonomy? Elon, a lot of people think that that Tesla is going to be the front runner for level five autonomy, which is where the car can just do it in every situation, right? If it's snowing, if there's a diversion. Uh, if there's a deer that jumps in front of the car, whatever it is, there's a lot of things that we still need to get from like 95% there to 100% there. And that last 5% when safety is so involved and people's lives are at stake, it's really, really important. Um, you know, for anybody who, who drives a Tesla, they, they know that they can safely drive around neighborhoods and even on highways on autopilot and not be concerned about it for the most part. But in terms of a fully autonomous vehicle that, you know, is picking you up from the airport and dropping you off at home and there's no human driver there at all, I still think that it's, it's a work in progress that's making a, a lot of progress, but we're not there yet. Yep. Okay. Could you possibly just give a quick overview of your background and what drew you into the world of investing? I started as a chemical engineer um, that was working in chemical plants and uh, swatting mosquitoes off me in that Texas heat we were talking about. <laughs> And uh, what, what does a chemical engineer do? Right. So it was, mine was product engineering. My, my fascination in college was saying, okay, let's go out and make some new products, you know, use some, uh, some creative chemistries to, to engineer some new products and then go out and figure out how we're going to, how we're going to market and sell them. And that kind of led me uh, out of, out of uh, manufacturing and into more of a technical sales role. 
where I was going out and I was talking with product development guys, talking to uh, chemists, you know, the people that were developing their own products. And, and no matter what the industry, no matter if it was agriculture or personal care or oil field or whatever, everyone wanted to create something new. Everyone wanted to be doing something that was going to put them ahead of their competitors and they were going to charge higher prices and make better margins for it. And so it's kind of this front row seat to all these, these really awesome trends that were developing all across America. Uh, organic farming, you know, demulsification, you know, personal care, all, all these kind of things that were going on. It was really neat to see everyone trying to push the bar higher for innovation. And um, after doing that through most of my, all of my 20s, I went back, I got an MBA in entrepreneurship uh, from Rice University, which, which Ed, I'm kind of excited to, if you don't mind me saying this, they, they just got awarded the number one MBA in entrepreneurship program by the Princeton Review for the third straight year now. Incredible accomplishment. Very proud of the, my alma mater. Um, did that for a couple of years, went into a, uh, an oil food company. I worked for an energy company here in Houston and developed their renewable energy strategy. We were building the, the business plans and worked very closely with the venture capital arm of the company to go out and acquire the technologies that would go into uh, solar thermal developments. You know, we we're building solar plants all across the country. We wanted to use it as a complement to oil and gas because that was still the bread of the butter, bread and butter of the company. And uh, doing that for a couple of years, that was awesome. It was a lot of fun. I really kind of wanted to change gears and look at things from the outside, looking in now, right? Did a lot of cool stuff from inside of companies. I said, okay, let's look at this from the outside. Let's be an investor. Let's look at where the opportunities are and pick companies against one another. I, uh, I worked for Motley Fool for seven years. Uh, four of those seven years, I ran a, a division of their, of their company called Motley Fool Explorer, which was really neat. Got to go out and do some traveling, got to chat with some really smart people, have a great team. And we focused on innovative pockets of the market that, that had investment opportunities. And then in March of 2020, Ed, my favorite part of all in my professional career was launching Seven Investing. We now have a team of, uh, of seven advisors who are going out and finding our best opportunities in the stock market every single month. And we're presenting them for individual investors to make even more informed decisions off of. We, we think that investing is a very personal thing. We want to set the table and say, hey, here's our best ideas. But at the end of the day, we want to encourage everybody to not just have someone else take care of all that for them, but actually be actively involved in investing, making the decisions on your own and, and saying, okay, what do I want to accomplish in my financial future? And then how am I actually going to get there with publicly traded stocks? That's awesome. And um, when you were at The Motley Fool, what was the most valuable thing you learned about investing? Having there, You must have covered a huge amount of stuff there and worked with a lot of different people. Yeah, it's a great company. I have a, a huge amount of respect for them. I, I think one of the things that they did really, really well was not anchoring on prices. Um, there's so much focus mm. on price targets out there. If, if you see the sell side research, you see a lot of it saying, okay, the price target is $80. The stock is at $60 right now. And then if the stock goes up to $90, there's almost kind of this, this mentality that the stock is beyond its price target, right? You're supposed to sell. It's above what the sell side research analyst has said to sell it. And, and I don't personally prescribe to that. My fool, I know, doesn't um, prescribe to that thinking as well. We, we think that great companies will find ways to unlock value um, that is not showing all of their cards immediately. Or a perfect example of this is Amazon with Jeff Bezos and the Kiva acquisition. Kiva Robots was acquisition. I think it was 2012, Ed. Maybe don't quote me on the year, but they went out and they said, hey, we want to have robots that are going to go into all of our warehouses. And they, they made an acquisition of Kiva for $775 million. And everyone said, no, this is way overpriced. Why are you doing this, Jeff Bezos? You know, ridiculous premium you're paying for something that's just technology. And then you see now today, it's saving them tens of billions, probably about $15 billion a year in logistical costs just by having all of that automated. I mean, something like that, there is no institutional investor in 2011 that was going to say that this $775 million acquisition was going to be saving them $15 billion a year. But of, of course, a huge win for Amazon, a huge win for Amazon shareholders. And it all comes from leadership and being innovative at the end of the day. That's impressive. How do you keep on top of these? I mean, I know you said you're not, typically not focusing on the big companies like Amazon, although 10 years ago, I suppose it was, it was more on the innovation stage. Um, how do you keep on top of the, the, these sort of developments that come out and assessing whether or not they're there's a, you know, people don't understand the potential of certain things and that's where the opportunity exists. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is, is travel. You know, I, I really love to encourage my team to travel. One of my advisors just got back from a conference in Omaha, uh, shareholder meeting this last week and he had a good time. He said it was snowing. 
which blows my mind because it's hot down here. But <laughs> I guess when you live in Omaha, it's a little chillier. Uh, go ahead and go ahead and talk with people. You know, learn. Like I said, it's it's almost intimidating to jump into the deep end and say, okay, I'm going to be asking a PhD or a postdoc some questions about their research that they may have done for the last five or ten years. Uh, you know, and, and who am I to to know what they're talking about? But they love to to chat about what they're interested in, and I think it's kind of our job to connect the dots between really really interesting research and what could that mean eventually for the right company to take advantage of. So these people don't necessarily work for the companies that you're sort of looking into, or or do you do both of those? Like, is it do you try and get employees, you know, at, at these companies to to really dig down into what they're doing and and try and assess whether or not, you know, the market's un, uh, underappreciating some, something as de- developing it, their company? Kind of both. You know, if, you, if you're interviewing somebody that works in an enterprise or a publicly traded company, they're going to tend to have a bias to talk about what they're working on yep. uh, and what is most interesting to them, right? So you've got to kind of put a little bit of a filter when you're speaking with somebody that's already a CEO of a publicly traded company. Of course, there's going to be a bias and you would expect that. Um, we tend to, for our own podcast, try to mix in a lot of perspectives from people who are academics, who are more third party, uh, who are more of just kind of, let me look at this from a 10,000 foot level and make an assessment of, what, of what's going on. I mean, a great example of this is Worley. I, I just chatted with an expert in quantum computing. He's been a software developer in Austin his entire life. Fantastic, super, super brilliant guy. Uh, you know, and he's got his own company called Strangeworks that's, that's a developer, but he is also agnostic to which type of technology is used to build a quantum computer. He says, I'm going to let the academics figure that. I'm going to let the companies you know, take that research and build uh, enterprises out of it. But at the end of the day, I just want to build the software layer on top of that and let the quantum do the hardware heavy lifting for me. Someone like that is invaluable to chat with because they're going to look at the industry very differently than someone who's saying, hey, I'm tied to this. This is the way to go. You know, Ion trapping or whatever else it might be. Um, sometimes it's really good to have kind of a third party perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. I can see that. So I thought we could just talk about a few of the disruptive trends that are most um, interesting to you at the moment, what you think represent the, like some of the best opportunities over the next sort of decade. Um, I know one that you've talked about a lot that we've not covered before really on the show is, is that sort of personalized medicine. So I thought we could potentially start there. Yeah, personalized medicine is, is really changing the way that kind of these diseases or, or uh, conditions have been chronically treated for years. It's been... Such a financial undertaking, you know, with Medicare here in the U.S. and uh, just the commitment we spend on drugs every single year. And a lot of the medical community is saying, what if we could just fundamentally treat those diseases? What if we could actually do uh, a gene editing or a gene therapy or a cell therapy or a base editing or a prime editing or, or, you know, all these different fields that look at the upstream of what's going on before these conditions arise? We've heard a lot about CRISPR. CRISPR is kind of going to be the first wave of a huge focus on your DNA and how we can repair your DNA so that things that are problematic will not arise in the first place. Amazing example of this, Ed. I I don't want to reveal the name of the company, but anyone who's enterprising with Google can figure it out really quickly, is we had a free time recommendation on our seven investing scorecard of a company that's working on the the drug delivery uh, for RNA for RNA interference and making sure that gets in the right part of the body to address the condition that, that it is, whether it's the liver, where it, whether it's any part of the body where the organ is, it needs it to be. And then you can do gene therapy on top of that. Mm-hmm. I got acquired for an 80% premium by a really large drug maker today and worked magic for, for all of our recommendations and any of our investors that followed us into, that, into those recommendations. I mean, things like that, you can see these are still very small companies. These are small cap stocks. But my goodness, there's a ton of innovation going on in personalized medicine right now. And is it, am I right in saying um, you took a di- one of these DNA tests to sort of explain how you react to prescription drugs? That is also correct. Yeah, pharmacogenomic test. And you have done your research on me. I'm impressed. <laughs> and how did that go? It was interesting. You know, you can, it's kind of an eye opener when you say, okay, this is how your body reacts to caffeine. You know, or any other drug that's out there, it'll say we're, we're all different. We respond to drugs very differently. It's something that's kind of neat to have in your back pocket that if you ever needed to go to the doctor for something serious, uh, just like right now, we're aware of what we're allergic to and we're aware of our family history. But how cool is it to have a full report where you bring in and say, okay, here's 
what my DNA says I'm going to respond to better than other drugs that are available. That's crazy. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. So big, big opportunity in that sort of personalized medicine space. That's, that's a really interesting one for us to um, keep on keeping an eye on, actually. Um, and then what about machine learning inference, AI, semiconductors, all these are sort of related in my mind? Probably one of my favorite topics. And Ed, we could, we could have a two-beer conversation, as I like to say about this one. This was one that could last for a long time. <laughs> the 10-second uh, the or the 30-second overview is that we've done a good job of training computers to recognize things, whether those are voices, whether those are cars, whether those are images, uh, whatever it might be. And we've just spent a lot of time training them. Now the next step is the inference, where they're actually figuring out what they are looking at or listening to. Um, and making a decision upon that. Kind of the quintessential example for this one is Alexa. The chips that are in the data centers that Amazon is using for Alexa have to respond to the questions that you are asking. And at first it was just words, you know, is understanding what is the single word? Is he saying Simon? You know, okay, now I understand what the word being spoken is. But over time, we don't necessarily speak in ways that we would type to a computer in, a, in an operating system, right? There's context. We use idioms, even, even in Texas and in London, we're using different phrases to describe things, right? And, and so you've got to, after you do so much training now, it's the next step is to say, okay, how can you in a fraction of a second respond to a question, not only understanding what the words are saying, but also the context of the overall question itself. And that's inference. That's machine learning inference of, of saying, okay, what is the next step? How can I respond in the way that is most optimal to something like that? And you're seeing even Google assistants are now able to make and book uh, hair appointments for companies. Um, you're seeing that, that Zoom is trying to preserve its bandwidth because there's so much um, latency and you know the, the challenges of having video conferencing. I mean, stuff like that. There's a ton of opportunity now that we have AI that can make decisions. And so this is kind of generally being called machine learning inference. It's, it's a huge opportunity for stock investors as well. I think um, that there was a good example of that on NVIDIA's recent conference call. They were, I believe they were showing some sort of... Uh, metaverse version of the ceo and uh, he was answering questions live um but it was a machine behind it that was understanding the context behind the questions and providing answers to them i don't know if you saw that at all it's fascinating and and, and just a, a side note on nvidia too Eddie, back to what we were just chatting about about how stocks can continually go higher i think a lot of people have said oh i missed the boat on nvidia oh look how much it's gone up it's up 20,000% since this IPO or whatever it is. But still, that company is going to continue to succeed through AI. That's going to continue to be a leader in this entire space because it recognizes the market opportunity. And there's no doubt in my mind that that's going to continue to be very lucrative as an investment for shareholders. And what about virtual reality? I think that's someone else that you're keen on. It's an interesting one. I mean, when you look at the metaverse and Mark Zuckerberg putting 10,000 engineers on this project. Wow. You can't ignore it. Um, that's huge for the one of the largest companies in the market, putting that kind of resources into something. It's, it's going to be follow the leader and everyone else is going to try to catch up. It's going to be, I think, in my mind, the first wave of this is going to be gaming. Um, Did you say 10,000? 10, 10,000 engineers at wow. Facebook are working on the metaverse. That's insane, isn't it? It's insane. And so gaming, you think, could be the first thing that provides value, which makes sense because they've already got some sort of things that in that area at the moment, although they're not that sophisticated yet, are they? Yeah, and it, it's something I chatted with a gentleman just a couple of days ago about. Of I think everyone has got this perception that the metaverse is just all of a sudden going to take over our world. We're going to be putting on the Oculus. We're going to be in virtual reality world for 12 hours a day, and then we go to sleep. I don't think that's right. I think it's more likely that it's going to be a compliment where we can interact with people we wouldn't be able to see. Uh, Zoom calls are great, but it's much more fun if you have an avatar, perhaps, you know, doing something with somebody. Um, meetings, conference calls, you know, the enterprise has got a, a huge interest in this. I think it's going to be more of a step up from where we are doing things remotely first. And there's going to be this kind of fun ready player one aspect to it. But I, I think that that is more of a five, 10 year out kind of thing. Um, but the, the part of that, that that might still happen earlier rather than later is the gaming part, because we've already embraced virtual reality for game development today anyway. 
And so what other use cases are there outside of gaming? And well, I mean, what other use cases are there outside of gaming? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Ed, you know, imagine if, if in this interview, right, rather than recording it over a, over a podcast or over a Zoom call, imagine that we could be in the middle of of a of a factory, Got you. you know, or, or seeing how a company is performing somewhere, or you actually they can show Nvidia can show you exactly what it's doing in its conference calls and its presentations. Like you said, the machine, the AI is behind it. I mean, what a compliment to be able to see something like that in person. Okay, okay, yeah, I can see that. So, yeah, there's a huge amount of work still to do there to get to that sort of stage, but that's the sort of future that potentially might be there. Yeah. And simulations too. I mean, so much of what we do is trial and error. Imagine if you can do simulations for things like drug development, for things that are highly technical, like heart surgeries, um, anything that that needs a lot of decision-making for it, that you want to make sure you're making the right call on something very important. If you can let the AI and the simulation take a lot of that off your shoulders and then you just focus on the decision. That, that's a huge benefit for a lot of companies. Yeah. And I thought now we could just um, segue over to talk about investment strategy, um, maybe your own personal strategy slash how 7investing approaches it. Um, so I thought like, to begin with, we could start with what does 7investing stand for? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I don't know. There's a bunch of answers to that question, I guess. I, I've always been <laughs> kind of fascinated with the seven wonders of the world. Um, maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe it's a lucky number seven. You know, if you're playing yeah. caps, that's obviously a lucky number in, in casinos. Um, but I, I kind of, the eureka moment for me was I, I really just wanted to pull seven advisors together. I wanted to have a dream team of, of stock pickers and not just look at things from my own perspective, but say, okay, if I've got somebody who has a PhD in, in biochemistry, which we do, looking at that part of the market, if I could have a PhD in computer science, which we do, if I could have a, a master's in material science, which we do, that's looking at the, you know, think different. A person who's worked in AI, person who's worked in financial services as a detective who is solving financial crimes. I mean, kind of this collection of this team that we put together, I think we are much stronger as seven of us than any one of us would ever be because we look at different things. Yep. And so that's why seven investing kind of exists is to say, okay, seven is, is I think the right number of a team that's small enough, but also strong enough to cover all aspects of the market and really get into what's innovative going on out there and finding the best opportunities. And so the team is split up and focused on certain sectors, themes. Is that right? Generally, yes. We have the freedom to pick stocks from any sector we want to, but we do tend to specialize. That is correct. Okay. And can you give us a quick overview of what the investment philosophy is at 7investing? Yeah, sure. Our, Our mission is to empower you to invest in your future. The reason we say that is, like we were mentioning earlier on, on this um, discussion, is we think that investing is very, very highly personal. We've got seven principles that guide us. And we, the first and foremost is that nobody understands your risk tolerance or the markets you want to invest in or the size of the companies you want to invest in better than you. And so it's one thing for me to go out and say, hey, Ed, my top stock this month is going to be a super high risk space economy stock. Right, that could be a twenty bagger. It could be worth twenty times its original investment in five years, but it's also got huge risks attached to it. It might not, you know, it might lose fifty percent. That might be great for someone who's saying, "Hey, I want to go out there and swing for the fences," and that's the type of pick I'm looking for this month. But then there also might be another investor that says, "Hey, I think that's great, Simon, but I'm really more interested in a solid dividend-paying company." I want something that's going to beat inflation, that's going to beat the return of the S&P 500, but I really want to take a little bit less risk because I'm counting on those dividends to support my family through my retirement. And so we didn't want to segment. We didn't want to just focus on one type of investor that was only risk averse or you know, a little bit less risk averse. Um, we wanted to say, we're going to, we're going to put the buffet out for everybody. And so the whole ethos of 7investing, the philosophy to answer your question is to really get a hold of how markets are changing. Um, find the companies that are immune to disruption because they have strong enough moats and strong enough competitive advantages. That's one aspect of what we do. But then the other aspect of what we do is try to break those companies, right? Look for the disruptors, look for the innovators, look for the companies who are small today, but are going to be much, much larger in the future because either they're going to, they're going to grow the market organically, or they're going to take share from others. So we, we want to kind of balance that. We look at both sides of the barbell. And yeah, so as, as a company, your belief is that investing returns follow innovation and something that you uh, just well, you just mentioned, you believe in companies that have sustainable 
competitive advantages or remote. Can you go into detail on that and, and explain it to us a bit more and, and why it's important? Yeah, I mean, one of the kind of the one of my favorite investors too. You you asked me for just one earlier, which I said Clay Christensen, but I mean Pat Dorsey, who built the investment framework for Morningstar, is certainly another one. Uh, he kind of was the expert, if you would, of, about competitive moats and competitive advantages. Warren Buffett, of course, certainly was, but he put a framework to how do you assess um, if a company is does have advantages over its competitors. You know, why is it capturing higher gross margins because it can have higher prices than competitors? Why does it have higher operating margins because it's going to market more efficiently than its competitors? Uh, what is the relationship between a company's average? Weighted average cost of capital that it's borrowing money at versus its return on invested capital, which is what it's deploying that capital for. I mean, all of this is very quantitative, but it's also a it, that's the science part of it, the math part of it. There's also an art part to it too, of like you just said, of you know, does investing returns follow innovations? Yes, it does. You have to continually challenge yourself as a business to do something different than what everyone else is doing, because otherwise you're just running with the pack. You're going to get average returns, maybe below average returns, if you're just trying to commoditize your business. Mm -hmm. So this is why Tesla's stock price looks like it does, because Elon has kind of uh, been this ultimate disruptor of industries that has been fearless and putting huge amounts of money on, on making giant bets. And that is something that's very hard to do. But again, if you, if you embrace innovation, you embrace doing things that are different. That's kind of where the biggest opportunity is, as opposed to just kind of running with the herd, yep. which you could just very easily buy an S&P 500 index fund to do. And how important is the executive team in your analysis? And how do you, how do you assess whether or not they're good or not? Extremely important. That is one of the most important parts of any investment, in my opinion, is what is their game plan? And then how are they using your capital to achieve it? Uh, and so some examples, you know, of kind of how do you, how do you figure that out is not only, you know, qualitatively looking at the leadership, what is their past track record? Where did they work before? Why did they start this company? Back to the Max Levchin thing about transparency and finance. Do they, do they have a mission that is strong? Are they getting the right people on board? Netflix is a great other example of, you know, Reed Hastings embracing innovation, building a team and then building a product that, that fit what the market wanted to do. Um, more quantitative, uh, if you want to look at, at the other side of that as well, is look at the proxy statements. Look at the definitive proxy. It comes out every single year. This is something the SEC mandates to be uh, published for publicly traded companies of executive compensation. You know, you look through how are they being incentivized to perform? And that's going to tell you a lot. Charlie Munger kind of always says, hey, incentives are the most important thing of investing. Short-term bonuses are paid based on typically metrics that leadership teams want to hit. And so they're going to be really focused on what their check looks like at the end of the year, because they've got their own personal interest in that. And a lot of times that could just be something that's not well thought out. It could just be, oh, go out and get revenue growth or go out and grow earnings per share. Those are bad metrics for incentive compensation for an executive team. Uh, much more important is profitable growth. Make sure that you are, you know, have something there about cash flows, have something in there about if you make acquisitions, you know, it has to be a profitable acquisition. Yeah. There are good examples and bad examples of a proxies and executive comp. And how do you get the details of executive comp? Is that 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 report you're talking about details it exactly how they're getting paid and how they're incentivized? Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. So if, if you look into uh, so uh, every proxy statement, every uh, uh, DEF 14A is is the SEC document. And if you dig down into that and you say, okay, there's a section that will tell you about executive compensation. Uh, most publicly traded companies have got three components to this. They've got a salary that they're going to get no matter what. They're going to get a long-term equity vesting plan, which should vest over a couple of years, right? Maybe it's four years it invests. But then the interesting part to me, Ed, is it's like, what are they getting paid on in the, in the year bonus? What are, what are you motivated to do this year that you're going to want to knock it out of the park on? And what would be good? What would you look for as a positive compensation sort of structure? There should be something that's tied to earnings. And, and there almost always is, you know, and it may be something tied to revenue too. But a lot of them have got something that's tied to cash flows, that, are, that is tied to margins. That is tied to um, uh, you know growing a specific program within the company. You want to see progress, especially for a drug developer of getting something through phase one, phase two, or something like that. Yeah, um, stuff like building a team. Sometimes it's about you know you want to make sure you'll get paid if your if your company gives a certain satisfaction 
of, of how they like working here or your customer satisfaction in PS. I mean, you see sometimes things that are a little bit off the beaten path, uh, but are really well thought out of how executives are getting paid. I, I will say there's sometimes the other side of this coin that you see just terrible executive compensation plans. Uh, Nuance Communications was a company a couple of years ago, not it's since been bought out now, but used to be that they were just kind of go spend money on acquisitions at any cost. Um, and their CEO was getting paid $15, $20 million a year for underperforming the market every single year, You know, sluggish revenue growth that was organic. But they would just go out and they say, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to buy more companies because we think natural language processing is super important. But as a shareholder, that's terrible. That's exactly what you don't want to see. You don't want to light money on fire. You want to make sure that a company has got the leadership that's making um, really smart decisions because it's your money at the end of the day. It's your capital that you're buying shares of those companies with. So both sides, you know, leadership to answer your questions is extremely important. And once you've discovered a theme, disruptive theme that you've bought into, um, how do you go about sort of narrowing down the companies that you think are most likely to benefit from the theme? So are you looking at fundamentals, valuations, technicals? What's, where, where are you focusing your time? Uh, it kind of depends on how far along the company is. If it's a brand new company, probably the most important metric, at least in terms of fundamentals, is revenue growth. Um, are they catching on in the market they're, they're trying to compete in? If you're, if you're a startup and you're only growing at 10% a year, you're probably doing something wrong. You should be growing at 50% a year. Um, if you're a newly public company that's only worth a billion-dollar valuation and you're only growing at 5% a year, maybe you need to adjust your strategy. I mean, revenue growth is super important for earlier in the stage. And then at some point, a company needs to start thinking, okay, we got this outsized revenue. This is great. You know, We're Amazon. We, we're tapping into this new thing called e-commerce, but how are we going to start doing things like acquire Kiva Robotics, like we mentioned, that are going to enhance the profitability of the business? And so that's kind of the next step of after you look for the, the top line growth, the embrace from the market, talk about things like product market fit a lot of times when you're a venture capitalist. Now there's the next step of like, you really need somebody who's going to execute that can say, okay, this is catching on. We get it. But at the end of the day, how are we going to tighten up on the sales and marketing that we're doing, on the R&D that we're doing, on the overhead that we're spending our money on? That's where a lot of times you can really ring out a lot of operating uh, expenses. You can kind of pull out those synergies. Sometimes if you're making acquisitions, you can be a lot more efficient. And that's where your operating profit line item comes from. And to me, that's one of the most important lines um, on the income statement for me as an investor, at least, is saying, how is a company becoming more efficient? and using that to our benefit as a shareholder. And so you found you know, some companies in certain themes that you want to start an investment or a starting position in. How do you go about like portfolio construction, um, like diversification within it and, and weightings? Is there some sort of way you approach that? It's a personal question. It's, it's one that, again, is going to be different for everybody. Um, the weightings you know, have certainly traditionally been thought about of stronger companies, stronger moats, larger position in the portfolio. I don't personally think of it that way. I think of it in terms of opportunity and risk versus reward rather than just stability. I think that larger companies, like we said earlier, are, are more followed. And so there's less inefficiency in the market for them. Whereas I will typically love to see a company that has less competitors in a new field that's still risky and is growing quickly and is, and is scaling its business. Uh, for me, I, I am very comfortable having a position in my portfolio that's 20% of my entire assets. But again, this is something that's different for everybody. Um, if you ask 10 people how they construct their investment portfolio, get 10 very different answers. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, but you're a believer in concentration, basically. And is that right? And then and do you add over time? It's like you, that position builds over time as, as you... Um, become more confident of its success? Or is it something where you might start with a large position if you thought the opportunity was big enough? Almost always add over time. I almost always add to a position two or three or four times to get to a full-size position. I never start and back the truck up, rarely ever. Um, when I see an opportunity, I say, okay, let's, let's buy in. If the stock goes up, that is a buying signal for me. Right again, traditional thinking is like buy low, sell high, wait for there's a dip to buy in. I actually don't think about it that way. I think of like, okay, the market is rewarding a company when it gives it a higher stock price. It's doing things right. And so like NVIDIA, 
you can wait for NVIDIA's stock to drop 50% for the right buying opportunity. But in my opinion, if NVIDIA's stock drops 50%, that's probably a bad sign. That's probably something is not working or they messed up or, you know, that's a kind of a bearish indicator for me. I would rather see NVIDIA's stock price growing 30% a year for 10 years. And then you get in all along the way as it goes up because market doesn't care what your cost basis is. All that matters is, is forward from this day forward. And if you're getting a 30% return from a company that's already up 18,000% from your IPO, that's fantastic still. And do you ever, what's your approach to selling? I think what I read is that you, you rarely do, basically. Are you just sort of building a bigger and bigger portfolio over time and adding in cash at points? Our team tends to think of, of selling when there is a risk of permanent capital impairment. Um, the thesis is broken or there's just something that if it happens, we're really hosed. Uh, and so a lot of times a sell decision is basically just us saying, we don't think this company is going to turn it around. We, we think that they were wrong. I mean, every company does what they think is right at the time, but it takes a couple of years for management strategy to play out. If after two or three years of management still scratching their head and said, oh, well, you know, we, we kind of thought 3D printing was going to work for us, but it, it really didn't go so well. Maybe you kind of step back and say, okay, maybe we don't need to have 3D printed Christmas gifts that we're 3D printing in our office, 3D printers all the time. Things like that show a lot of promises are working their way up the hype cycle, but sometimes it's just market's not ready for it, or the company doesn't execute right, or you've got the wrong leadership team in, the, in there. There are a bunch of reasons why companies fail. And if we see those, we tend to say we're getting out because we don't want any more pain. Got you. And that's a hard balance to, to get right, isn't it? Because sometimes you'll see stock market performance go down, even if the thesis hasn't changed and it, it looks like it's still right. But I mean, in, in terms of your strategy, that's, that, is that the thing you always come back to, that hypothesis of what, the reason why I invested this is X. And if that is still intact, there's no reason for me to sell. It's almost like opportunity to buy if, if this, this stock price has gone down a bit. Yeah. And maybe we can kind of give a couple examples of what that might mean uh, to the context of your question. A lot of focus is being paid on earnings per share right now. That is kind of the go-to metric for a lot of institutional investors. Just say, okay, here's the expectations we had. Did you hit or did you miss earnings? Say that there's a company that misses earnings. And immediately, because 90% of, of trading is being done algorithmically right now, the herd is going to sell that stock. They say, oh, you missed earnings. You guys, you tricked us. You know, you didn't hit what we expected for you. And then the stock sells off, call it 20%. But if you go through and you listen to what the management team says, they might say, hey, we missed our earnings because we doubled down on our R&D spend on something we're really excited about right now. And this is going to pay off in a year. And you know, we're going to hold ourselves accountable through this product roadmap or through this strategic roadmap of whatever it is. Don't just let them off the hook to sell a good, tell, tell a good story to you. But if they say, hey, we're really going to double down on this, and here's what you should expect from us six months out, a year out, maybe that money that got put into R&D rather than falling to the bottom line is going to um, be much more valuable for a long-term investor over the long term. And so something like that, that is a volatility that you can capture the opportunity from. That is something the market is selling off, which... We don't just sell based on volatility. We sell based on impairment of capital. But, but something like that is a great example of what you would want to see. However, on the other side of the coin, say that they did that a year ago, two years ago, and then still two years out, we said, hey, this is sucking money out of the business. It's not working. We're still seeing 2% growth from something you told us is going to be a billion-dollar opportunity. That's something that didn't work, and that would be something that would be thesis changing for us, and we would cut ties at, in a situation like that. Thanks for that. That's a good, good thing for people to remember. Um, and I thought just before we wrap up, I could ask one last question. Uh, what's the worst mistake people make when investing? And in your experience, if there's one thing that you see time and time again, uh, that's you know the reason behind bad performance, what do you think that is? Uh, probably the, the, the biggest mistake is just continually putting it off. Uh, more often than not, I'll, I'll, when, I, when people find out I'm a uh, my career is, is being a professional investor. They'll say, oh yeah, investing is great. I've got somebody who handles that for me, or I don't really want to invest in the stock market. It's too hard. Or I've even heard it's rigged against you. I mean, everyone has kind of convinced themselves that for any reason, any number of reasons that to not invest and just say, I don't want to deal with that. You know, it's too time consuming, whatever it's rigged against. Me. <laughs> That's 
a mistake to think about it that way. Even if you're just buying into an S&P index fund, which historically returns 10.5% per year, I mean, that is outpacing inflation. That's how you build wealth over time. Your, your purchasing power increases over time when you are investing in things that are growing faster than inflation is growing. And so over time, you say, oh, wow, even if I get 10% a year, I can retire now and buy a house or put my kids in college or whatever your future goal is to just get started today. And it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm going to move all of my retirement portfolio into individual stocks. Or, you know, I need $20,000 to even get started. I mean, we're at the point of zero commissions today. You can get started with $100 this month investing in some company and follow along and learn more about it. Knowledge compounds just like money compounds. As you spend more time learning things, it's going to make you a better investor and you'll make better decisions over time. I mean, this is kind of the whole ethos, again, of why we, we were so excited to start 7investing is because we wanted to empower people to lower that intimidation bar and say, don't put this off. Don't just not do this because you think it's too hard or too time consuming. Get started today. And we're going to give you some ideas of investment opportunities that are out there. And then we want to hand the baton to everyone to, to make individual decisions off of those. Well, thanks, Simon. It's been great to have you on the show. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, and where can people go to find out more about 7investing and you know, follow you and your insights? Yeah, certainly. Thank you for the opportunity, Eddie. I had a lot of fun on your show. And uh, thanks for giving me a chance to chat about our own company too. We're 7investing.com is our website. Uh, our Twitter handle is at seven investing, the number seven. Uh, like we said, we've got a team of, of seven advisors. You can always go to our site. If you want to see, uh, we have a lot of free research that we publish at seveninvesting.com slash research. And if you wanted to, to sign up and actually see all of our recommendations, that's seveninvesting.com slash recommendations. Uh, you do have to be a member to sign up for that. We have a, uh, the subscription that we offer is $49 a month or $399 a year. Uh, but if you're a student, because we want to encourage students to get us started as early as possible, and we know students don't have a whole lot of money because at least if you're like me, you might have been spending it on beer or other things when you're in college. Um, we have a student rate that's only $84 a year. And so for $7 a month to get an access to our team, I, I think is a unique opportunity. And so I'd encourage everybody in the audience to at least come check it out. And send us questions to info at 7investing.com if you want to learn more about our business. We're here to help. Awesome. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.